I want you to take this in the right way. I mean it with a, a sense of humor. But uh, someone came up to me in Sunday school this morning and said, I'm sorry I won't be able to hear the sermon because I've got a lot of cooking to do uh, at home in preparation for a party tomorrow. And I said, well, you're going to love the sermon. And she said she'd catch it on the screen, so if you're watching, I'm not going to mention her. But, uh, you know, when you, when, when you stumble into your sin, on the one hand, you're horrified, and on the other hand, you just have to laugh and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, so I'm going to read the passage uh, right off the bat before we dive into it. Uh, it's the last uh, several verses, starting in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Thus far, uh, the reading of God's Word. Um, I want to start off with a rabbit trail, not really germane to the text, uh, although it is uh, uh, germane to the larger context of what we're doing, Um, and that is... I just want to pause and say that there are many instances in the Gospel of Luke in which Jesus has some fairly remarkable interactions with women. Uh, It's well known in the field of biblical studies that Luke, alone among the Gospels, um, brings forth or brings to the fore uh, the presence of women in the ministry of Jesus. It's a big deal in Luke and things get highlighted there that aren't highlighted or picked up in the other Gospels. You have Mary Elizabeth, Mary and Elizabeth in the first chapter, and then it keeps going uh, there. Women take large parts of the gospel. Again, several unique accounts. There's a parable that features a widow. There's a group mentioned in chapter 8 that are uh, part of Jesus' ministry and integral uh, to it, a group of women. Uh, And so it's good to pay attention in this passage, especially in this passage, the way that Jesus honored, loved and respected uh, women in his ministry. It's a distinctive part, not only of the Gospel of Luke, but it's a distinctive part of the ministry of Jesus. And so we need to pay attention to it and, uh, you know, if possible, get on board with it. And notice that in some ways this is a, a unique feature to the emergence of the Christian church in the first century, uh, was the way that women, in contrast with the way they were treated in Greco-Roman culture, uh, occupied places of significance in the church. And uh, it has always been the case that that women are prominent in the church, at least in terms of numbers, but that's largely uh, because by this example, uh, they found good treatment, they found honor, they found respect uh, in the context of the Christian church from the earliest uh, days. Now, you know, the interesting thing is, is that we live in a world where we want to take that and run with it and maybe take it too far. Uh, it is good to note, or important to note, uh, that Jesus, as 
willing as he was to throw off the cultural norms of the day, uh, did not have women serve as apostles. They were not among the twelve. And uh, I've read the feminist literature, and, and uh, alarmingly, uh, the word on the streets and in the academies is, well, Jesus was just giving in, not wanting to create a fuss, not wanting to disrupt uh, the culture in which he lived. And, uh, and, and that ought to make any Christian's knees go weak, to hear that kind of slander against the Lord himself. Uh, in fact... The way that he welcomes and treats and honors women is quite uh, disruptive uh, in the culture in which he lives. But I, I, I just want to remember, as we see this mundane, homey interaction, what we've just been through. Uh, we saw in the last chapter Jesus transfigured uh, before three of the disciples. Uh, they heard a voice from heaven saying, listen to him. Uh, which was virtually a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 18 about the prophet that would rise up. Uh, We saw a couple of weeks ago that Jesus claimed, and it was true, that he actually saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He said right after that that all things had been given into his hands. Uh, We might want to be careful with whom we assume to have been influenced by the culture. Uh, Jesus was a man who marched to his own drumbeat. Uh, He was the one who defined uh, the culture around him. So that's my rabbit trail. If you want to talk about it over a cup of coffee, I'm glad to do that. Uh, Now to the heart of what's going on in this passage. I want to say at the outset that obedience is a tricky thing. Uh, I was in a conversation with some folks this week, and we were talking about the the paramount importance of obedience for any Christian, uh, anyone who would call Jesus their Savior and their Lord. Uh, Obedience has to be uh, right up front as a necessary category. But obedience is a tricky thing, and we ought to be aware of that. Doing the right thing is often hard. And if you're sensitive to the dispositions of your own heart and the vagaries of the many interactions that you have, uh, you will often be surprised uh, to note that listening to God's Word and doing it are often quite different from what we would have expected. Uh, We get caught up short. When we think we're doing the right thing, all of a sudden it it occurs to us, or all of a sudden there's a blinding flash that says, not so fast, my friend. Uh, This is one of a few Mary and Martha episodes in the Gospels. Uh, You can go read uh, John chapter 11 and 12 uh, later on today uh, if you care to. Uh, The John 12 passage is replicated in Mark 14. Uh, But these are women who loom large. Uh, They seem to be uh, close friends of Jesus. They seem to be on a a very friendly, even intimate uh, relationship with him. Uh, Again, go read John chapter 11 and you'll see how Uh, Jesus related both to Mary and Martha and to uh, their brother Lazarus. Uh, Seemingly, they were all close friends. Uh, This is consistent with our section of Luke, uh, with what's going on in Luke already. Um, uh, Verse 38 says, now as they went on their way, this is part of the road trip to Jerusalem. I mentioned that, that that's what happens in chapter 9. 
after the transfiguration, after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus takes a decided turn and starts heading toward Jerusalem, and he lets his disciples know the reason that we're going there is because I have some business to attend to, and pursuant to that business, I'm going to be betrayed, uh, I'm going to be put to death, and I'm going to rise uh, after three days. So this is part of that road trip. Um, it, it may indicate that Jesus turned aside from the entourage and went to visit Mary and Martha in their home. Uh, but Martha welcomes Jesus into her house. Again, that is emblematic in the Gospel of Luke of her faithfulness, uh, her demonstration of hospitality. Uh, Zacchaeus in chapter 9 is similarly going to welcome Jesus into his house. Um, but it is interesting to note that it's described as her house. And she is presented in this passage, if you wouldn't guess it, uh, as someone who is prosperous, uh, who's an independent patron, someone who owns her own house and she welcomes Jesus into it. Now, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, which we looked at last week, the contrast was between those who did nothing and the one who showed mercy and acted. Uh, here, interestingly, that's reversed. It's a curious inverse. Uh, one is acting, but her actions are marred, and the other does nothing, seemingly, uh, and is affirmed. Uh, so let's take a look at the passage. Let's compare the two women. Um, first, Martha. And uh, I think that Martha gets a bad rap, but we do need to pay attention to what's going on. Uh, and, and again, it's critical to understand uh, that Martha is deeply loved by Jesus. Uh, we tend to read this thing. When we, uh, when we duplicate people's names, it, it's usually a little bit of derision, isn't it? Uh, when you think about uh, scolding a child, you know, you'll just kind of shake your head and say, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny. And, uh, and, there, and we, we incorporate that cultural sensitivity to this, and he's going, Martha, Martha. But that's not what's happening here. Uh, you may well know that in uh, a Semitic context, uh, which is certainly what Jesus is in, that the doubling of something adds intensity to it. So if you've ever seen R.C. Sproul's... Um, uh, videos on the holiness of God, he draws out a point from uh, somewhere in Genesis where uh, these deep, miry pits are described in one of the battles uh, of the five kings, and, and, uh, and they're actually described in Hebrew as the pit pits, uh, that the word is duplicated to intensify it, and Sproul uses that to describe how important it is then that surrounding the throne in Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord is called holy, holy, and then a third time, holy, because it intensifies his holiness. Well, when a name is duplicated, again, it adds an intensity, but there's also an affection, and, and, there's, and, and, and there's a heartbreak to it. So the three places that I think this is prominent in the Bible, uh, first in 2 Samuel 18, uh, when David cries out, having heard of the death of his son, uh, the son who betrayed him, he says, Absalom, oh, Absalom. And there's heartbreak in his voice and the deepest possible affection. Uh, Jesus, when he approaches Jerusalem later on in the Gospel of Luke, he stands outside the city looking into it and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
how I've longed to gather you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks. There is affection and there is heartbreak. And then probably the same thing is going on uh, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when he says, Martha, Martha, uh, there's an intensity of affection for her. And that ought to be the first thing that we note that undergirds everything that we understand from this point on is that Martha is a woman who is deeply loved by Jesus. Now, secondly, uh, you notice, of course, that uh, while she is important, uh, and you pick that up in John chapter 11 as well, uh, she is decisive. She's kind of in charge. That happens in John 11 as well as here. Uh, uh, Here, she's very busy. Uh, And in the Middle Ages, it was often... Uh, brought out that Martha is pursuing uh, a secular calling while Mary is pursuing a sacred calling, uh, and that's a misreading of the text. Uh, What Martha is doing here is doing ministry. She's serving the Lord. And and in many ways, one of the commentators that I read said, this is directed to people who are in ministry, who are way too busy. And they are confused in their busyness to think that they're doing it for the Lord. Now, they might be doing it for the Lord, but they might need to be aware of some other motivations that are taking place. She is properly exercising hospitality. Welcoming him into her house is a good thing to do. Uh, Serving him, getting the meal together, all good things. She's doing it for the Lord, and yet... Jesus comments and says, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And those two Greek words are strong words that are disruptive. Uh, They are words having to do with the absence of harmony, uh, with the absence of rest, with the absence of shalom. Uh, She's got a lot of plates spinning. Uh, She's the one who is in charge. One of my uh, professors used to call his wife, with great affection, with great affection, he would call her the D.U., Uh, What he meant by that was she was the director of the universe. Uh, She was a woman who could keep all the plates spinning, and she could run everybody's lives. And to good effect, it helped the community. It helped us all function together in the class. Um, But sometimes it got away from her. Uh, You've known women like this. You've known men like this as well. Um, Jesus says that she is anxious. Anxiety is an interesting category, isn't it? When we are anxious, we often imagine ourselves uh, to be victims. We often imagine ourselves having been victimized by a set of circumstances that is producing anxiety. And what's interesting is that the, the apostle writes, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be known to God. I remember hearing a minister, a good friend of mine, uh, describe one time that he thought he was on top of the world, doing everything for the Lord, planting a church, a little bit bedraggled, and he read that as a command and he was undone by it, that his ministry was defined by his sin, by his anxiety. It is no surprise then that Martha becomes a little surly when it comes uh, to her sister. It's the first indication that her service is ill 
motivated. Uh, Lord, do you not care about, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The repetition of a personal pronoun indicates there's a certain amount of self-centeredness that is motivating Martha's concern. But damage to relationships, surliness toward one another is often the mark, it's the telltale sign that our motivations need some examination. If your ministry, if your activity, if your service has a component in which relationships are being damaged, uh, then it's time for you to step back and say, what's going on? But the signal comment that defines the interaction that I have actually highlighted in red is when uh, Martha says, Lord, do you not care? She complains that Jesus doesn't care and then presumes to tell him what to do. And I know that virtually every one of us in this room has done the same thing. That at some point in your exasperation, as you're relating to the Lord on a personal level, you raise the same question. Lord, don't you care? Don't you care? If you cared, this is what you would do. The the implications of this are vast, and they're also very familiar. Implying in our prayer life that God doesn't know what our problems are and that more grievously he doesn't care. You know, this sounds an awful lot like the Garden of Eden and the serpent's accusation, the serpent's slander. The Lord doesn't know and he doesn't care. It reminds me a little bit of Isaiah 40. (laughs) I have found myself rebuked by this more times than I care to mention, uh, where uh, the prophet says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? How many times have I prayed and said exactly that thing, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? You know, there, there are places in the Bible where People actually tell God to wake up. And you want to say, oh, wait a minute. Now, it's true to every human heart. It's true to the impulse that all of us have got, but it kind of shows you who we are. By the way, Isaiah follows that up with a well-known section. He says, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And so something else is going on when my prayer is not being answered. Then that, God doesn't know or doesn't care. Something else is happening. It would be good for me to know that. Well, again, the Lord loves Martha enough uh, to challenge her and even to rebuke her. And again, hear in his voice when he says, Martha, Martha, his deep affection. You are anxious and troubled about many things. And and consider that Jesus is not confronting a Pharisee. He's not confronting one of the scribes or the teachers of the law. He's not 
confronting one of his opponents. He's not even confronting a Roman soldier. He's speaking to one whom he loves very much, one who's very close to him. This is Martha, Martha. Well, let's look at Mary in contrast. Uh, She sits and listens. And I want to say, you know, we need to remember the rest of the Gospel of Luke and what's going on here. Because Mary, I think, is emblematic of a theme that has been taking place in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, She is emblematic of those who are poor and hungry and mournful and even persecuted, whom Jesus calls blessed. She takes that posture. She's a lot like the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7 who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. Uh, Closer to home, the passage we looked at two weeks ago, she she is the one who rejoices not in ministry success, but rejoices rather that her name is written in heaven. And this compels her to sit at Jesus' feet and to listen to his teaching. To listen to his word. Now, uh, sitting at his feet is important. I want you to underscore that. Um, The other explicit instance of this verbal formulation uh, in the Gospel of Luke is in chapter 8, the account of the Gadarene demoniac. Uh, And verse 35 says in, in Luke 8 then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone. Remember the legion of demons. They found him sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. I I love that passage. I think that passage, if I was a younger man, that might be worthy of a tattoo. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and she is in her right mind. And interestingly, that, that invokes fear uh, in the, the folks from the Decapolis who came out to observe this. And there is something about it that, 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 that makes you take a step back and say, what's going on? You know, in all of our lives, there are things that we have to do. There are things that we should do. And there are things that we would like to do. You, you need to pay your bills. You need to brush your teeth. Uh, you probably ought to be productive and keep a clean house and a kempt yard for the sake of your neighbors. And you may play golf, go to a movie, go to the beach. We have all of these things that, are, that rise or decline in terms of their importance, in terms of their, well, I almost slipped up and said necessity. Because Jesus says there's only one thing that's necessary. Among all the things that you do, there is only one thing that is necessary. He's addressing Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. You know, when Tim Keller got sick and got his diagnosis of a, of a cancer that was dreadfully serious, uh, he 
recounted later that his own devotional life uh, took a great leap forward. And one of the things that he said was that he and his wife had concluded uh, that their devotional practices were the necessary thing. And they used an illustration, and they would, they would talk about this frequently to people, that if a doctor came to you and said, here's a prescription, uh, if you take this pill every day, you will live, but if you miss even one day, you're going to die, that it would be very easy to remember to take that pill. And they began to understand that their devotional life, their sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his teaching was just that critical. It was just that important. Only one thing is necessary. And it's important, again, to note that sitting at the feet of someone uh, is, is, uh, is an important posture, biblically speaking. Uh, to sit at the feet of someone uh, indicates submission. She's not just listening to Jesus' teaching, she's submitting to him. She's taking to heart the things that he's saying. She's pondering them. She's letting it sink in. She's letting Jesus' teaching challenge her attitudes, challenge her dispositions, challenge her thoughts. And she's rearranging her thinking, rearranging her affections, rearranging her posture in line with sitting at his feet. And so it's a good question to ask, when you read the Bible, are you sitting at his feet? Are you, are you letting the Word of God arrest you? Are you letting the Word of God confront you? Is there any change taking place in your life as you interact with the Word of God? Now, this is a big question. I've heard it said that if, if you are never arrested by the Word of God when you're reading it, then you may have to question whether you're reading it at all. If the Bible only underscores or, or, or baptizes your convictions, well, you would be unique among humanity, and I know you're not. What Mary is doing here is transformative. It's not a mere five-minute devotional. I mean, the popular little track that was out when I was a young Christian was Seven Daily Minutes with God. I don't know if you remember that. And it was kind of a good idea for those that thought they were too busy. They would at least get started uh, with Seven Daily Minutes for God. I think out of those seven minutes, three were reading the Bible. Uh, but what Mary is doing here is not reading the Bible for three minutes. Uh, she's sitting and soaking. She is being arrested. She's being challenged. She's being comforted. She's being transformed. And this is the good portion. Jesus says Mary has chosen the good portion, which be, will not be taken away from her. You know, the other instance of sitting at the feet, and this is a little bit derivative, uh, but it came to mind this week, is Psalm 110. You remember what it says in Psalm 110, uh, that Jesus is seated at the Lord's right hand. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And of course, oftentimes we take that, to, you know, and again, this is where our imaginations go and not in a helpful way. That the enemies of Jesus being made a footstool for his feet is all those guys. 
the bad guys. And, and we forget how the Bible identifies us. The apostle Paul makes it clear in Romans. He says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We were the enemies that are being made a footstool uh, for his feet. I love that hymn that we sing on occasion. Once your enemies, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. I don't know if we sung it here, but it, I've sung it before. Uh, it might be a lousy hymn, but that one line has always grabbed me. Once your enemies, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Well, as I mentioned, this is one of three Mary and Martha episodes in the Gospels. Uh, you'll be happy to know that Martha is redeemed uh, in John chapter 11. When I preached John chapter 11 one time, a good friend named Martha came up to me after and said, I'm so happy to hear about this. But uh, Martha might in fact, and I heard one preacher say it this way, that Martha's the first Christian. Uh, you'll remember in chapter 11, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You remember Martha's response? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So all of that energy and all of that decisiveness served her well when push came to shove. Mary keeps going with this posture of sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his teaching. It's interesting that in the Mark 14 account, you know this account. She's actually not named in Mark 14, but it's the same account as in John chapter 12. John 12 she is named. Uh, but she comes in and she anoints his head with expensive ointment and there's grumbling in the crowd and in fact the grumbling is centered on Judas and you remember Judas, the scoundrel, you're allowed to growl and spit. But he says, why couldn't this money have been given to the poor? And uh, Jesus, you know, you remember it. He says, uh, you always have the poor with you. But you might not remember that he says that, that Mary has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now what's arresting about that is that it is notable in the Gospels, in Luke and in all the other Gospels, that despite Jesus repeatedly instructing his disciples face-to-face, -face, three times dramatically, that he's on his way to Jerusalem there to be crucified, that they never get that. They never understand that. And when it happens, they're shocked by it. Well, one person did get it. One person knew what he was talking about. Because she was sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching. She was letting her preconceptions be altered, be crushed and then rebuilt and transformed by the teaching of Jesus. Alone among those who were following, she got it. And she got it by sitting at his feet, by taking the good portion. And the upshot of that is, you know, again, one of these remarkable verses in the Bible, uh, Jesus says that consequently, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, 
what she has done will be told in memory of her. I, I don't think that occurs anywhere else in the Bible. That anywhere else, wherever the gospel is preached, around the world and through the centuries, what Mary did in that moment, because she was listening to his teaching while sitting at his feet, uh, is told in memory of her. Now, to wrap up, we ought to remember that as we rightly observe Mary's submissiveness to the teaching, uh, that Jesus, in fact, was the most submissive person who ever lived. Uh, That he is the one who took the place of the enemies of God, the deepest possible mystery, when he submitted himself to death on a cross as a substitute. If you can even say it this way, he became the enemy. And the offer of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and raised, is unlike any other way of thinking. It's unlike any other religion. It is the grossest mistake that modern Westerners make to assume that Christianity is very similar or is in any way similar to any other religion. Every other religion, and indeed your own instinct as a fallen human being, tells you that you need to be good to get to heaven. Right? I think there was a rock and roll song back in the 50s. I want to be good so I can get to heaven and see my dead girlfriend. Jesus turns that inside out. Uh, You can't be good enough, but he was. And he submitted himself, taking on the sins of his people so that they would be properly and righteously punished. So that by faith, which is not this believing the way that we understand in the English language, you know, a wistful hopefulness, but by faith, we connect ourselves to Christ. Uh, Maybe a better word is trust. We entrust ourselves to Christ. And in that, there's a transaction where our sin goes on him and surprisingly, amazingly, his righteousness is given to us. That's what he meant in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes and the Pharisees were perfectly righteous. If you followed them around, you go, these guys are awesome. They don't take one step without consulting the word of God. But Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that, unless it's a perfect righteousness, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, God did what the law couldn't do. Punishing sin uh, in the cross of Christ and then giving righteousness to those who connect themselves to him uh, by faith. And then curiously, submission to this faith transformed character. It ends up turning you into a different kind of person. Not by dint of your excruciating self-discipline, Uh, but by the gift of the Spirit, the fruit of which, (laughs) one of the fruit of which is self-discipline. So I want to invite you to come to Christ. If you're not a Christian, uh, it would be a good time for you to think, maybe I need to become a Christian. Find a Christian that you know and say, please sit down and talk to me about this. 
Uh, but if you are a Christian, I want to tell you, come again. Come again. Come to this Lord's Supper next Sunday night. This is, this is the best picture of coming to Christ for Christians, that you come to the Lord's Supper and you say what Martha said. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ who is coming into the world. You get to say that, and then you get to taste it, and you get to experience it. There's only one thing necessary, right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as children, uh, we learned a song, or if we didn't learn it as children, we learned it as we sang it to our children, uh, that we are weak, but you are strong. And how glad we are that you know that we are weak. Uh, If we are wise in our best moments, we know that you are strong. Uh, So come again. uh, Feed us with your word. It never returns to you void. Would the fruit of it this morning be an enhanced faith, uh, a deeper love, uh, a deeper conviction, and a corresponding uh, transformation of character? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.